Welcome to Scrappy ABM, your source for groundbreaking approaches that don't break the bank. ABM shouldn't cost 200K in tech to even get started. So if you want to get started with ABM or make your program even better without investing a massive amount of money, you're in the right place. Each week, we'll hear from the brightest minds in the marketing world who are redefining ABM, achieving incredible results with untraditional methods, limited resources, and a whole lot of creativity. This isn't a show about how much money you can spend on fancy tech or overhyped tools. Instead, it's about celebrating creative problem solving and the scrappiness it takes to get ABM right. We'll dive into how these marketing leaders built robust ABM strategies with limited resources, revealing the actionable insights that led to their biggest wins. So if you're a marketer ready to challenge the status quo and build a scalable, efficient, effective marketing strategy, Scrappy ABM is the show for you. So if you're ready to discover ABM strategies that are lean, impactful, and utterly transformative, let's dive into this episode. Today, I have a fellow marketer and marketing extraordinaire, Mason Cosby, who provides no-nonsense practical marketing execution that drives revenue. Mason is the founder of Scrappy ABM and specializes in crafting high-impact, low-budget, account-based marketing programs. He's been the mastermind behind campaigns and revenue growth at multiple businesses. Mason was also the host of the much-loved marketing podcast, The Marketing Ladder. Get ready for a conversation about marketing, podcasts, babies, and more on Lee2B. Hey, Mason. Hey, Lee. I'm speaking at an event next week. Can you be my hype man as I walk up to go speak at that event? Because I, I will, love I totally will. that intro. <laughs> so this is what I say, because everyone says it to me. Like, the intro is the only formal thing I, I do. <laughs> and I just, I, I have fun writing it. Because one, I find people just don't, I'm the self too. Like, when somebody asks me to write my intro, I'm like, I have a master's degree. And like, it, it's the same thing. So plus, somebody like you has been on so many podcasts that I like to just say different stuff. And then I also just don't like to be like, hey, like, tell us who you are. I'm going to tell my listeners who you are. Anything to add to that bio, no. though? The babies was a surprise. Didn't know we were going to talk about babies today. But oh yes. you may actually Later hear will. her in the background. But anyway, no, I think it was honestly maybe oversold, but I'll take that. Well, nah, that's being humble, but I'll, I'll let you be humble for now. But today is a super exciting day. The day we're recording it, you have just announced that your side hustle has become your full-time hustle which is Scrappy ABM. So just let's go right into that. Congratulations, first of all. But tell us about that. Well, one, thank you. And two, I, I launched this little side hustle right before my daughter was born, probably four four months ago with really, to be quite frank, the intent of I want to give my wife the ability to stay home after our, our child was born in the event that she wanted to. And I've always enjoyed doing a little bit of side hustling just because I feel like I learn a ton from the clients that I work with. And just having the exposure to how other people are running marketing in our current environment dramatically impacts your ability to run marketing during your day job. With that said, I think the message of Scrappy ABM, which is you don't need a $200,000 tech stack to run ABM, seemed to resonate really well in this current market. And actually in about three months was able to replace both my and my wife's income for the next year in just contracts and essentially at that point, just had to have the hard conversations to say, I think I want to do this. Because the other thing, right message, right time, I really wasn't pushing scrappy ABM that much. So the fact that that much came in in three months just showed me if I really put my all towards this, I think this thing could grow. And clearly there's a need. So I'd love to fill that need. 
Yeah, so we've had some ABMers on before. So account-based marketing, again, if, if you didn't listen to those episodes, just go listen to them or Google it. We're not going to do the basics on, on this one, but but actually we probably will at some point. Uh, but tell me about what, what does it mean to be scrappy? What's the scrappy mindset? Yeah, so that's, we'll get a little bit into the basics. So just from that perspective, I, I think most people have three levels of understanding around account-based marketing. So the top level is, oh, it's ads. So like I buy an ABM platform or I go into LinkedIn and then I just run ads towards my target accounts and I'm doing B2B marketing. Yay. And like, that's not it. So then the next layer down which is where people start to truly run ABM is, okay, it is this really comprehensive growth strategy that is inclusive of marketing and sales. If you also want to include customer success, which I do, like it's a true revenue function strategy where they generally start to stumble is in order to execute said revenue strategy, I need an ABM platform like a Terminus, a Sixth Sense, uh, a demand base. I need a data enrichment platform like a Zoom Info or a Sales Intel. I need a sending platform like a Sendoso or a Postal. And you end up kind of marrying all those things together. And it's legitimately in the ballpark of $150,000 to $250,000 a year just to buy the tech stack. So a lot of people have this misunderstanding that in order to run ABM, I have to have these tools which means most people don't start running ABM because who has time to manage that many platforms? And also who even has the budget to invest literally a quarter million dollars just in the tech, not to mention the implementation projects, not to mention the training. Like it's six months from a fully integrated program with all your different pieces of technology. So again, if you're trying to prove ABM is going to work, you're legitimately going to invest upfront in time and headcount and tech, probably somewhere in the ballpark about half a million dollars. You're like, cool, I'm never going to do that, which is where scrappy ABM comes into play, which is there are very clear things that result in ABM failing, almost none of which have to do with any technology. So how do we start with what we have today and be a little bit scrappy about it and try to put in place the foundations and the operational components that re are required for ABM? And it's actually less about the technology and more of how do we actually create clear lines of communication between marketing and sales? Like, where is the appropriate handoff that sales is going to start getting involved with our programs? What does marketing's involvement look like post the handoff with sales? Oh, and by the way, how do we ensure that we're actually targeting our best fit customers based on not just what sales is saying is easy to close, but also what our finance team is saying is the most profitable customers, what our CS team is saying are the best customers to work with. And how do we start to think holistically about that? Almost none of that has anything to do with technology. Almost all of it just means you're actually talking to your internal team in building some plays to get you started. So that is where Scrappy ABM is going to live. So people and processes is is what I what I'm hearing. And honestly to me it's what I've always done. People and processes is where you start or should be where you start with ABM. Not the tech, not the tech stack, not the tools. When you're going to do ABM and, and so many people just rush into ads or fun campaign ideas because they're fun and they're tangible. But like first thing you do is, okay, one, are leads actually routed to salespeople correctly if we start getting you know leads from that? Two, do we have accounts assigned to people properly? Are we doing territorial? Are we doing other factors, product fit? So getting all of that set up first is super important rather than just diving into that. And that, to me, is where so many companies have trouble. So 
ignoring all that, the tech stack first, how do you really help people get aligned between sales, marketing, CS before, before ABM can even be on the ground or running, I should say? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Most people would probably start with something like, we're going to do an audit to understand the ways in which your teams are appropriately functioning today. And nobody likes to be audited and buy an audit. And especially in our current environment, they need something that can actually produce. So what we do is we generally are starting with what is called a, an activation play. So that's either sales activation or success activation, which is a very fancy way of saying we're going to look at your existing data, understand the flow of data within your system, and figure out what are the trigger points that we could then notify sales and say, hey, these are the right fit people. They're showing something that indicates they probably are ready for some level of a sales conversation or a clear offer. And then we're going to build out that sequence. That could be automated emails, manual email templates, calls, social engagement. We build the sequence and we set up all the operations around the list segmentation and actually then notifying sales. And in some cases, depending on the, the technology that currently exists, we can actually automate the entire process for sales where they're automatically enrolling in those outbound sequences. And that's really where we start. Because in that, essentially marketing is coming to sales and saying, hey, this is a clear opportunity for us to go outbound, for us to activate with the right message at the right time, and we already have the right people. And because we're starting there, generally speaking, there's not need for new technology. Most organizations today that at least I'm talking to have a CRM and they have marketing automation and they have some level of a sequencing tool. If they don't, and this is free promotion, they can use a tool called Smart Lead that I use for clients that don't have a sequencing tool. It's 80 bucks a month. That's where you can get started. Mm -hmm. If you also don't have an appropriate data flow and a lot of contacts in your existing system, you could use another tool called Propensity, which has a free tier where you can build target account lists and actually see third-party intent data on 100 accounts on a weekly basis. So again, I'm not anti-tech, I'm just right strategy first. And if you're needing additional tech, use things that are inexpensive, that are month to month, or that are free, so that you can prove a model before you invest the 200K. So that's where we're generally getting started with clients. It's building an activation play of some kind to show quick results. And I want to be clear for listeners, what I just described is actually not ABM. And I know that. So please don't come at me. <laughs> what it is, though is it's creating clear lines of communication between marketing and another division within the organization that is results-oriented. And that's really where most people fall down. So that's where we start. So that to me sounds a little like RevOps. Where would you say the, the distinction is between some of that and, and the RevOps job function? Yeah, I think RevOps is more holistic, if I'm being honest. Like mine is mm -hmm. a very clear scope. And I come in as kind of a task force. Of like, we have a clear task, a clear objective. We have contacts that exist. How do we get those contacts? How do we filter them into the right lists for our sales team? How do we then help our sales team activate on those people? And then what's the right message at the right time to the right people so that they convert into meetings? That's it in a nutshell. Whereas I think RevOps would be a lot more holistic about it, but it also would take longer. So again, that's the trade-off is... I'm not going to claim to be a RevOps expert. I'm going to claim to be able to help you activate your sales team or your CS team. So you can either close new business or expand new business. Perfect. Yeah. And so you keep going to this, this phrase or term, uh, activation plays. What, what's, a, what's one or an example you can give for our listeners to, to really put that definition clearly? 
Yeah, it's it's honestly the one that has been my favorite. I can't share exactly who because of good old NDAs, but I can share. Uh, I work with an escape room company, which you would not think escape room B2B, but they have a corporate arm that does team building, team training, and they actually have like leadership consultants that will review the game that you played as an escape room and help you understand the different roles on your team from a communication perspective so you can better communicate. It's really cool. 98% of people that play on the B2C side of the escape room have no idea or concept that there's a B2B arm. And that's fine. But what's really interesting is on a weekly basis, they're getting anywhere from 250 to 300 people booking to play their rooms using their company email address on the B2C side of their business. And it all lives in the same system. So when I brought up this idea, the sales team said, yeah, I mean, we kind of do that like once a month, but to pull out the list, to pull out all the segments takes us about five hours. And on top of that, we don't really know what to do with them anyway. So we send them like one email and then we move on. Like <laughs> that's a treasure trove all of opportunities. Yeah. So what <laughs> we ended up doing, and it took us about 30 days in total, we built out the operations around like, what are the prime locations that we want to focus on? So we focused on the geos that had the highest opportunity from a B2B perspective. And then from there, we built out some workflows that then would exclude anything that was the vast majority of free email providers. And it's not perfect. But again, it's, I would say 90% of the way there. And then there's continuous refinement that we do. And from there, it then based on the zip code routes to the right salesperson, they have an active list that then updates every single Actually, it's real-time updating, but they review it once a week, and it takes them 15 minutes. They select all the contacts that are in that list. They enroll them in a HubSpot sequence, and then it goes out. They're getting an average of three to five meetings per rep using that sequence because, simply put, we took people that are already brand aware, that already had a very enjoyable experience with the company, and said, we have these additional services that might be interesting. And that was it. Fairly simple in theory, but has made a massive impact on their ability to actually book new business on the B2B arm of their business. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm in B2B because when I hear escape rooms, like that, the first thing I think of is, is team building and corporate events. So you, you know <laughs> I'm in B2B when I hear that. I personally have done several over my career. I No shade your client. I hate escape rooms. I, I think they're the worst thing ever. <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah, so one other thing that you are offering is ABM pilot programs. And to me, that sounds really interesting. Again, because I am an ABMer. ABM is not a pilot program, typically. ABM is typically more of something, yeah, we need data, we need time for this, it's commitment. So very excited to hear more about what the pilot program entails. Yes, I mean, from my perspective, you can build a pilot program as your starting point, which is, again... How do we use the right tools and data that we have today or identify, that, hey, there's gaps and we can fill in these specific gaps. Again, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of free or very inexpensive tools that can help fill in gaps today. So from my perspective, the way in which we build out a pilot program is one of two ways. For clients that may have started with an activation play, depending on what that activation play is, we're actually seeing success building the rest of an ABM pilot program around the activation play. Because what's already worked through in that context is a trigger, a handoff, and we know we have a decent message that's resonating. So then the two things that we focus on are how to drive more accounts, so the right fit accounts, into our activation play. As opposed to just being kind of serendipitous contacts, it's now very intentionally focused on 
the marketing front of things and driving the right accounts into our trigger. And then the second half is how do you then optimize conversions post-trigger? So how do we build out maybe some specific marketing collateral? And how do we actually do advertising around the sequence in and of itself? So that can typically get knocked out in its entirety anywhere in about three to four months. Because again, we actually have the sales handoff part, generally speaking, worked through fairly well. Now, obviously, I want to be clear that activation play, it's single threaded. So what we want to do is start actually creating multiple variations based on personas, and it gets complex from there. But at the end of the day, the greatest challenge is the sales and marketing alignment piece. And because we have the activation play that works, we now have sales and marketing aligned, and we can now focus on driving more traffic into our triggers, optimizing post-trigger. Those are kind of the two areas. The other thing is in the event that we had a client, for example, that we're not necessarily going to do a full ABM program around my escape room client because that, for lack of a word, is a serendipitous play. Like we're waiting for B2B email addresses to flow into our data on the B2C side of their business and then pull them over to B2B. There's probably an account play there, but I don't think that that's truly an ABM program that we could fully build around. So what we would do with that client is say, hey, sales, you, you trust us. We built trust with the sales team. Let's build out a full program that, again, is focused on, we could even go geo-specific and say, look, we know that these accounts, based on our free tool called Propensity, are showing intent for corporate training, for communication, consultant. They're showing intent for the things that would be relevant for you, as an example. How do we then advertise to them using things like LinkedIn? Or how do we then do outbound sequences from an awareness? And like you build the full pilot program from there. And for us, we are focused on one of two areas, either very problem specific. It's like, what's the pain that people are experiencing that we then want to advertise around? Or the other thing would be uh, industry slash vertical specific. So again, if we can get really specific and nuanced to a specific vertical, we can do that in its entirety, roughly in about four to six months, depending on existing operational capabilities, depending on the existing content library, and depending on the internal structure that already exists. So shifting gears a, a little bit, you are a big proponent of the 80-20 rule. Now, th this can be applied to many things. We're obviously going to talk about that in, in the marketing and business context. But first, just maybe give a, a quick overview of the 80-20 rule, and then how you apply it to your marketing efforts. Yeah, so generally speaking, 80% of your results will come from 20% of your effort, as is the 80-20 rule, at least in my mind, from a marketing perspective. So the way in which I think through that is let's identify one, what I call a workhorse program. So if we can just figure out like one thing, <laughs> it's going to work for us, uh, that is going to drive a lot of business for us, then we'll focus our time there. And the rest of it, the other 80% of our time are focused on two things. One, optimizing our workhorse program by potentially supplementing with additional programs around it. And two, experimentation to see, okay, we've got this one thing that's working. Let's let this continue to work. We can experiment a little bit with this. But if a workhorse is working, I'd rather not screw it up. And I'd rather figure out something else that might work better. And then we come back and experiment. So Ideally, what you end up having are two programs that deliver well, and you, whatever one is delivering better, you kind of let that continue to run in, in that way. And then you experiment on the other to see if there's any way that you can continue to optimize uh, the one program that's not as performing as well. Both are performing well, but one is always going to be a little bit better. 
And and to be clear, a lot of people kind of misinterpret it and put all their eggs in one basket. Like the eighty twenty rule does not mean, hey, Google Ads is working. Let's put all of our budget into Google Ads. It means focusing on what has impact, not relying on one platform, but focusing on the strategies and tactics that that drive impact. I have seen a lot of people get it wrong, and they're like, "Awesome, this one thing is working. Let's shut everything down." Versus uh-huh. this one thing is working. Let's build our conversion model and our results on the idea that this is going to deliver a lot and we'll get some other stuff from other places, but like we should build our conversion metrics and our goals based off of this program that is delivering. And then the goal of everything else is to experiment in such a way that we can actually drive greater results. We still continue to experiment, not shut everything down. A lot of things people get confused with or have trouble with is either focusing too much on strategy or focusing too much on tactics and they don't have the the mix of of both or they don't know where to start like i've seen so many people just dive straight into tactics and be this 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 with no overarching strategy then i've also seen cases where everything was strategy and there was no real hands-on execution how do you help people get the the right mix of both it's a great question and honest to goodness one that i think every marketer is going to struggle with, myself included. I happen to be a very action-oriented person. So I sometimes jump straight to, hey, let's let's start doing something. And especially I'm in your early way. stages, uh, there's this quote from Sangram Verge, it's probably a year ago at this point, but like when you're really starting out, execution is your strategy. Like you don't have enough data to make an informed decision. Like you have hunches and you have a gut feeling. So like execute and then you can figure it out from there. So I, I personally, I'm probably going to lean more towards execute, iterate. Um, you can even, like, if you go to my website right now, it's a single page website. And the one piece of feedback that I've gotten from everybody is like, it's kind of long. There's a lot of information. You should probably break this up into multiple pages. I'm like, you're right. I'll do that in three months. Like, mm-hmm. but I'm going to launch it now and I'll iterate on it. So as far as how to strike the balance, I think it is looking at less of like a, in, a, a single person striking the balance. I think it's more of looking at it from a team perspective. Mm -hmm. And like the challenge is I've been primarily a solo marketer. Um, I do a lot better when I have, even if it's in a fractional capacity, as I've worked in past organizations, some level of a consultant that I can bounce ideas off of. Consultants by their nature are typically more strategic. Whereas in-house people by their nature are typically a little bit more tactical. And that's not to say that one is right or the other, but when you're in-house, you have mm-hmm. a lot more things coming at you from internal team members that are saying, we need to do this, we need to do this, we need to do this. And it's sometimes hard to come up for air. So if you are a solo team member or solo marketer, solo marketing team, like I would really push to get, even if it's just like a once a month, even if it's just peers, but like find somebody that's not down in the weeds every single day so you can bounce ideas and help come up for air. And if you are on a larger team, like I think the best CMOs that I've met still have some hand in tactics. They still do a little Mm -hmm. bit, but they are primarily focused on staying like strategic. And I think that's how you find the balance because yeah, you know better than I do. It's difficult to constantly be shifting gears and mindsets of like, how do I optimize this individual ad within our Google ad platform? Versus how do I look holistically at what is going to be driving revenue across marketing sales and CS? 
And like, mm-hmm. that's a difficult thing to come up and down from, especially from meeting to meeting or day to day. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm the same way. I'm a big component of like strategy is important and high level, but especially in startups, especially in agencies who work for startups, you're, you're there to get shit done. And that means tactics. Now, that doesn't mean not being strategic. It means to, to walk on chew gum at the same time, but also use your hands-on implementation to do, all right, we're going to get ads up. We're going to get emails out. But maybe those are the tactics, but it's still on the same theme and testing things out. The other problem, too, is if, if you're literally starting from scratch where you don't know what works, you don't want to invest in an entire strategy, have all of your resources put into that one thing, and then it just fails. So when you start in some kind of tactical level, you're not you're not investing things as much as you would be. The risk is lower. Yeah, and and one other thing to add, just because I, like I threw out the idea of if you're a solo marketer, like find a consultant. You may not have budget for that. Like you may not be given budget for that. And yes, like it's been helpful to meet with some peers, but at the end of the day, like this is nothing against my peers. They're wonderful human beings, but they're focused on what they're doing. And like, they don't necessarily have the mental bandwidth to really dedicate that much time to what I'm doing because they're focused on their own stuff, rightfully so. So if you are a solo marketer and you don't have the bandwidth or the budget, or if you're kind of on an island, even on a larger marketing team, what I did that worked decently well for me was it was a day. So like one day a month or two days a month, I had like a strategy day where I like looked at all of our campaigns. I looked at everything that was going and I looked at what was working and what wasn't. And then I also have what I called a data day. So the data day, not day to day, data day was entirely (laughs) focused on let me dig really deep into our data to understand like on a contact level, how did this person actually become an opportunity and why did they go close lost close one why are they stalled like in getting really granular into our data so doing that two days a month i spent the rest of my time focused on like actual execution and tactics but again if you can come up for air for a day or two days in a month it's going to ensure that you're at least continually you may not change directions but you're getting a pulse check on Am I still headed in the right direction or do I need to maybe shift directions? We're going to get kind of meta here, but you're a podcast pro. So we are going to talk about podcasts on this podcast while we're podcasting. But Love it. So, yeah, that's what we're doing here. So podcasts, obviously, they've been here a while. They're, they're gaining popularity in, in B2B especially. Where does ABM fit in with podcasts and where do podcasts fit in with ABM? So it depends on your business model, but at the core, the booking rate on a podcast, I remember the data from a while back and from my understanding a couple of years back, it was like, if you ask me on a podcast, that's not to be clear. Like if I ask Gary Vaynerchuk onto my show, he's probably not going to come, but like someone of, of level playing field or like slightly higher playing field, the booking rate on a podcast was like 80%. I don't know what the current data is. But again, if I'm thinking through, I've been sending outbound sequences. And again, even in the sales activation plays that I'm running, like we are shooting for a 5 to 10% conversion rate. That's the goal. Now, granted, we can do that at a larger scale. But like, if there's somebody you really want to talk to, podcasting is the best way to do it because four to five people you ask will likely say yes, which means you can then have an entire show structured around whatever is relevant for them. Um, 
this is how for me with the marketing ladder, this was unintentional. So like I, I fell into this and now that I've seen it, I can't unsee it. Uh, but the marketing ladder, when I was working in a, in a previous agency, it was a side passion project that I was doing for myself that was fun. That passion project resulted in a million dollars for the agency I worked for. Because after interviewing 100 plus people, inevitably like five of them said, hey, I really like talking to you. You seem to know something. We're looking for help with our marketing. Do you know anybody? I was like, I know me. You want to come <laughs> talk with the agency that I work for? And five people actually bought. So uh -huh. from that perspective, it's not the most direct of like an outbound sequence is going to be of you're struggling with these, these, these problems. We have these, these, and these solutions. Would you like to talk about it? But it is a pretty guaranteed way to actually build a one-to-one -one relationship with anybody in your industry that you want to talk to. It's like, that's, mm -hmm. that's the first component. It's just like recognizing it can, somebody even said this to me that probably six months ago, I was like, that is it exactly. It's the modern day equivalent to golfing for B2B. So like More equitable. Yes. And also uh, I'm terrible at golf, golf and I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm half, I don't golf either, but I'm half decent at talking, half decent. Um, so yeah, I can do this and get to know people and actually enjoy a conversation. And then generally speaking, after I've been on a podcast or someone has been on my podcast, we engage a lot more with each other over social, which then results in them like constantly being reminded that I exist. When they have a problem that I help them solve, they come to me first. I've done, so before this, I've done a few podcasts, some on the side helping people, others like in business settings. And I've literally had, a, not, it's not the case here. I, I want people to listen, but we've, we've literally had B2B podcasts where it's like, you know what? We don't really care if people are listening. It's for networking and it works. And that, that's a way to think about it sometimes. But, but that does lead me to ROI and podcasts. ABM is obviously, and marketing today, is all about proving ROI. That cannot be easy all the time with, with podcasts. I mean, obviously, if the person converts and the first origination was with podcasts, that's easy to track. But sales cycles are long and confusing. How do you prove ROI from podcast efforts? It's super hard. And they're, they're actually local here. Uh, it's a company called Casted, local to Indie. They're, they have a podcasting platform that integrates directly in your CRM as an attribution touch point. So like there are organizations that are trying to solve it. Um, I personally haven't used Casted. Like I appreciate what they're trying to accomplish, but also like it, it is just hard. There is a level at which and this is, this is where I have a bit of a love hate relationship with some, some marketing, but like, it's one of the things that you like, you have to believe in and you just have to know, okay, for the first six months, I'm probably not going to see anything off of this. But then suddenly, probably around month like eight, nine, 10, 12, I'm going to start getting asked on other people's podcasts. I'm going to start getting asked on speaking engagements. I'm going to start seeing people come inbound based on the quality of the content that we produced. And my guests are going to continue to engage with me. And like, again, I personally exist in B2B at all because of the marketing ladder, because I networked over two years with 118 people that were VPs yeah. and CMOs. So like, for me, it's a no brainer. Like I've experienced it and I can't unknow what I know now. So I recognize that podcasting is difficult to attribute revenue to. The thought processes around how you do it are one, just clear intentionality around 
who do we invite on the show? And you could even say from the perspective of this person has had no engagement with our brand and we invited them onto the show. Do they close ever? So yeah, you're right. If, if that was the first touch point, easier to track. But like, what about listeners? You know, like, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to track your listeners. Right. So I think it's one of those things of probably not the workhorse program because it's difficult to track, but it's the experimentation program once you've got your workhorse going. The other thought process, and this is this is one of the services that I offer, so this is not a sales pitch, but like, that's why we help our clients actually secure sponsorships to cover their mm-hmm. production costs so they can see the long tail impact of a, of a podcast. Because again, it's really around like month 18 where it becomes industry defining for you and your business when you've done it right. So short mm-hmm. answer, you're right. It's really freaking hard <laughs> to attribute revenue to a podcast. But it's one of those things where when you start to see it work based on the inbounds you're receiving, based on the people that you've had on the show that then suddenly come back, based on the, the other component was referrals, I started getting a ton of referrals my way. When you start to see conversations with you appearing where you have never appeared before, it's typically because of your podcast. Yeah. And I'd add, if, if you use any type of call transcript, like Gong or something, it's it's always good to, well, you should be doing this anyway if you're in marketing, but you should be, you know, popping in and checking out calls here and there. But you can easily, just, same with customer calls, but you can easily do a search for podcasts. Do they mention Lee to B? Do they mention something like that? So that's an easy way to find it too. I've had people in the last week tell me that they, because I'm unemployed, so not me, but they, they had people, they were doing sales calls and their prospect told them they were just listening to, to my episode, which is always a great feeling. So yeah, ROI might not be as easy as they clicked on the Google ad and converted. That's what ABM and Dimension kind of is about. It's the, it's the relationship building. Yeah. The only final thoughts, just if you want better con- click conversions, create a specific UTM that you put in your show notes. And then whenever you promote the episode, create a UTM that drives people to a landing page. Like you can attribute it, but I would never go to your CMO and say, we've got perfect attribution on our podcast. It's like, it's not gonna be perfect, but we have something. <laughs> and that's, right. that's probably where I'd leave it. Yeah, I mean, it's your job too as the marketer to to get as perfect as you can to to approve it. So whether it's that UTM tracking and then maybe using hidden fields if there's a form on the page or having a page for every blog post, there are ways to to do it. It's just not as easy yeah. as, as the Google clip. It's time for my next segment, which is Spill the Tea with Lee. That's right. This is the segment where we spill the tea on all things B2B. This is the sassiest podcast for B2B, and it's going to get juicy. So to start off here, you and your wife have been teaching English to immigrants and refugees every week for how long now? Wow, we're going deep. Uh, it's, yeah, it's been about I do, I do my research. two and a half years. Two and a half years. So first of all, that's amazing, but we're here to spill the tea. So I want to know, which is harder, teaching English to someone who doesn't speak it or getting non-marketing founders to understand and embrace marketing in their businesses? Number two, for sure. Primarily because people that are at our English classes recognize that English is going to, they live in the US and they need to learn English in order to function appropriately in the United States. So for them, it's absolutely essential for their own survival. And that sounds really harsh to put it that bluntly, but like that is the truth. Whereas a lot of founders do not recognize that marketing is essential for their survival. So 
they aren't as incentivized to actually put in the time and effort to understand. Sorry, was that mm-hmm. too spicy? No, that I mean that's what the segment's for. Um, so now we can get into actual some of the the cool stuff about it. But I'm just curious, how did that start? Um, and one, how do you have the energy to do that after marketing all day? But if you're interested in talking, I'd love to hear some about that. Yeah, really long story short. If you look behind me, there are these maps. Um, these maps are my life story. So my life story is very, as you would expect, born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama. Moved to Jackson, Mississippi for college, where I met my wife. Uh, we lived there for a while after. And then eventually, probably three three years ago at this point, we moved to Indianapolis. Pretty standard, right? Except for this one, Onkara Turkey. <laughs> my wife's parents, they were both from Memphis. But when they got married, they decided they were going to go be missionaries. So they moved to Singapore and were teachers in Singapore. And then my wife was born in Singapore. And then when she was about three or four, they moved to Turkey. And my wife's father founded the first government-recognized Christian school in Turkey, to which she then lived wow. there for seven or the rest of her uh, life until she you know, was 18 and went to college. Moved from Ankara, Turkey to Jackson, Mississippi, where she met me, a country hick from Birmingham, Alabama, and <laughs> married to me. And then we moved to Indianapolis. So my wife has grown up her entire life as what is called a third culture kid, which essentially means the Turks didn't recognize her as Turkish. The Americans didn't recognize her as American because her U S citizenship, like she's technically an American, but like she spent two months out of the year in the States. So she developed what's called a third culture, which is I'm a little bit of American, a little bit of Turkish, but I have my own little culture within my family unit. And as we, we ended up finding a church when we moved to Indianapolis that had this refugee program to teach English. And my wife really resonates with that a lot because you have a bunch of refugees that have young children that just moved halfway across the world to build a new life here. Mm. Their home countries don't recognize them as whatever their home country was. Americans don't recognize them as American, but they've lived here most of their life. So they have their own little third culture which my wife can then step into from a deep place of empathy and understanding and actually relate to them and help them through that transition. So I get to watch my wife absolutely thrive in an environment where she gets to help people make the transition that she had to make herself. Um, But to put it bluntly, my wife is white and doesn't sound like she's from a different country. So Mm -hmm. people don't know unless she tells them. So her transition, to put it bluntly, was a little bit easier. So she gets to help other people make a very difficult transition very effectively. Yeah. Well, that is amazing that that you two do. Do you speak other languages? No. <laughs> I uh, I know. I mean, very, I barely very, speak English, so. I, I've got a couple of phrases in Turkish that I like. I know how to say I love you in Turkish because that was sweet when we were dating. Um, nice, but yes. I unfortunately, again, hit from Alabama, don't know any other language. Next, next question. So you are you're a, a great person to follow on LinkedIn. First of all, if you aren't following Mason, go follow Mason. But what is your LinkedIn pet peeve? I mean, there's a couple. I had to think about it for a second. Like the the Take AI generated con- comments, as you might imagine, that essentially just summarized my post. Not, that's a bit of a pet peeve. The Will Aiken made an incredible post the other day that was like LinkedIn original content. And like, 
he was just scrolling and it was the same plane that had been hit by like a thousand bullets or whatever with like commentary around it. And I'm like, that's a bit of a pet peeve. Cause like, this is, this is why LinkedIn is an echo chamber because no one like not nobody, but legitimately probably half the content is just repurposed from other people and people mm-hmm. just trying to say something so they can get likes. So that's a bit of a pet peeve. Honestly, that's the same with all social media. Like, so other platforms I, I think are admittedly better but like that's where you say like youtube influencers or tiktok influencers who you see this in the comedy world too but who have big following so they'll see somebody smaller have have a little video gets no views or gets little and then they'll post about it and then their video will get a lot so it's the same in the linkedin world i for better and for worse have no other socials outside of linkedin in which i create i am on tiktok but i have not I made anything call like you a liar months. yes yeah i need i need to get back into it and now that i've officially launched scrappy ABM, i'm planning to but like mm-hmm. i am admittedly very naive to other social platforms which is probably a sin as a marketer but that's fine yeah so i'm not naive to other ones i just don't really post like lead to b stuff that i don't post that anywhere else i just post it on linkedin really like i i, I made a tiktok but like nobody cares <laughs> but like yeah so i i'm the same way what's your podcast pet peeve no goal but that's like a marketing pet peeve in general if there's no goal for the show the listener can feel it and then it's just like whatever and then there's no results generated it's like the the ceo that goes to the marketing leader and says we should have a podcast because our competitor has a podcast so then the marketing yes. leader haphazardly throws together a podcast and like two weeks and gets it launched it does seven episodes and then dies immediately and then the founder and that organization now forever say well podcasting was such a waste of time and it will never work that's my pet peeve yeah podcast podcast is a lot of work but any anything is if you want to get success from it so i i agree not giving to me that's my pet peeve in general of like not giving a a potential opportunity that could really go somewhere a chance because of yeah. misunderstanding. But so I mentioned baby stuff in the beginning and you're like, ooh, babies. But some other exciting news is that you and your wife recently welcomed a new addition to your family. Mazel Tov. Mazel Tov. Um, so I, I sometimes use this time on Spulete to pitch ridiculous ideas because I'm unemployed and have a lot of time to just think of marketing nonsense. So I'm just going to riff here. I want your thoughts on B2B, but it's B2BB, and it's a media network for baby influencers. So we have like a B2Baby podcast, the babyest podcast for B2B. The motto there is you got to learn to crawl before you walk. Um, like, let's do baby influencers. I think there's a whole a market for it now. I'm gonna One, stop there. I love the idea, too. I was still in the hospital when I started getting ads from baby modeling agencies. And that is not a joke. So like baby influencers are a thing because like, if you think about it, somebody has got to have the baby that then you slap on the Pampers box. Right. And like they want to change that box up occasionally. So you need new babies, which is like really weird to think about. So I think if you could build out a media model and a media agency that supports the baby industry and like baby modeling, there is a legitimate business opportunity there. 
Mm-hmm. We will need to have some babies on the board, though, to to get it to work. We have to test you want a boss baby. Them. But all right, I have some real questions now for you. Um, so we're gonna do a a would you rather B two B edition that I do sometimes. I did this on one of my podcasts with Michelle Craig. She's big into coffee, so hers was coffee themed. I know you like coffee too, but but we're gonna do this baby themed. Um, <laughs> so question one. Would you rather change 100 messy diapers in a row or work in 10 messy CRMs in a row? I'm going to get really nerdy with you. Are they breastfed or formula fed? I mean, you're talking to a gay who plans having no children. So I, I'll, if it's let's say whichever fed, one's worse. Oh, it's formula fed. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> let's say the worst I've, one, yeah. Uh, in that context, is there a clean CRM? I feel like I've only ever worked in messy CRM, so I can just do that 10 more times. Right, right. That's true. Yeah. Plus, like, that's kind of what people pay you for. Um, but, like, if, imagine being in, in a constant state of messy CRMs. Like, that's just... Ugh. All right. But that, so that was, that, was, that was question one. Um, question two. Would you rather have to speak in the worst corporate jargon for an entire day, and that's all you could say, or speak in baby gibberish for an entire day, including your sales I calls? I do both all the time. So, like... My sales calls are just corporate jargon about account-based marketing. And the second I step out of my office is baby gibberish. So, like, <laughs> I'm already doing both all the time. But you, you um, can only say things like synergy and circle back, like the real bad ones. I'd probably go baby jargon, because at that point, I'm probably <laughs> speaking to my baby, who is really mm-hmm. cute. Last, last baby theme question. Do you rather listen to 10 pitch lap demos in a row or listen to baby shark all day? Baby shark. That's not even. No. That's not even like, well, you probably Baby do that Shark already, is not then, a I guess. bad thing. Baby Shark. How is many great. times have you listened to Baby Shark? You just—is this your first baby? This is my first child, but I've worked. Congratulations. Around kids. But like, okay, but like, so I just—I know people with with children, and like when Baby Shark comes on, like you can see like their soul drop because they've heard it so many times. But you, you seem to like Baby Shark. That that answer might change though. <laughs> you're, the more you're you right. hear it. I have done a three-hour loop of Baby Shark, but that was only one time versus forever. Three-hour loop? Yeah. Wow. I've worked around kids a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, three-hour loop. Oh my god. How did you, you're just a patient person? I try to be. That's why you succeed in marketing and ABM. Well, this has been such such a great conversation. I'm glad I touched on the, the baby things. And, and again, congrats on. Not only starting a new business, but but on, on welcoming a new addition to your family and doing both Thank at the you. same time. So best of luck there. But to wrap up, you're an expert at podcasts. We're about to wrap up here. Give it to me straight. Probably the first time I've ever said that. Uh, but give me give it to me straight. What do you think of Lee to be? And then what tips do you have for me? It is in fact the sassiest podcast I've been on, which does accomplish Whoa. the goal from that perspective. It's so. not Aaron's tea though. And it's meant to be like that. You have a clear goal. It was enjoyable as a guest. I don't really think I have any other tips. Awesome. Well, Mason, thank you so much. I know people can follow you on LinkedIn. They can go to your new website as well. Um, I want to give you this moment to shout out anything, anything you have coming next or anything you want to hit on. I have launched a new podcast and then I had a child. So I have not published a new episode in about six weeks, but I have quite the backlog of guest interviews. So uh, if you would like to learn how to run Scrappy eBay yourself, the whole premise of the show moving forward is going to be people that are incredibly smart that have 
generated millions of dollars breaking down their exact scrappy ABM playbooks so that you, without additional tech stack, with a clear understanding of what the budget would be, clear understanding of timelines and expected results, can then go and run these things yourself. So there's not going to be an episode this next week, but the following week, I'm planning to start weekly episodes again. So go check that out. Awesome. I know I'll be checking that out. If it's anything like the marketing ladder, I know it's going to be nitty gritty, very in the weeds, and people are going to learn a lot of stuff. So definitely hit follow on that and listen to it. Thanks again so much, Mason. It's been great talking to you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Scrappy ABM. If you enjoyed this week's episode, go ahead and give us a follow so that you don't miss a single episode. We drop every single Monday so that you can start your week off right. And if you're looking for additional great content just like this, go check out ScrappyABM.com. We're building a library of frameworks, guides, templates, processes, and tools so you have everything that you need to build a low-budget, high-impact Scrappy program. Again, thank you for listening to this episode of Scrappy ABM. This has been your host, Mason Cosby, and we look forward to seeing you in the next one.